Less than 3% of the literature circulated in the English-speaking world is translated. Of that 3%, some literary researchers say that women in translation is around 26%. As a whole, across the board, men are being translated more frequently than women. And so the month of August has been dedicated by the literary world as the month to celebrate women in translation. And if you haven't read many translated works before, that's okay. You're going to finish this episode so inspired and ready to fill your personal library with stories across all borders. Nothing will be able to stop you once you hear this. As Shut Up, She's Talking speaks to women with all experiences, it was only right for us to hear from a woman in translation herself. So you're listening to Shut Up, She's Talking, and today we're speaking with Intan Paramedita. Intan is an Indonesian feminist writer, academic, and a woman in translation. Her writings were first published in Indonesia, and then later translated and published in English. To kick off our chat, I first wanted to know a little bit more about where Intan comes from. I was born in Indonesia, in Bandung, but I was there for maybe about a year when I was one years old, um, my parents moved to Jakarta. Our family lived in Jakarta, in central Jakarta. We were we were doing okay, but certainly my parents couldn't afford to send me abroad to study. So I applied for a Fulbright scholarship and I got the scholarship. I guess I had never lived outside Jakarta for uh, 25 years before I went to the U.S. to do my master's. So, um, Intan so left Indonesia, scholarship in hand, ready for the U.S. She studied her master's in English literature in San Diego and then later went on to do a PhD in media and film in New York. And despite first appearances, she did go on to love New York and it inspired so much of her later work. And I thought, huh, New York is really weird <laughs> because it, you know, it, does, it doesn't look, it didn't look glamorous to me at that time. Uh, New York to me felt like a third world city you, you could see everything, like uh, you could smell Indian food and then um, everything was so busy, but didn't give you a picture of um, busy first world Manhattan. But it, it was very third world to me at that time. And I really enjoyed it. And I felt like I was really connected to New York, especially Queens, where I uh, lived for many years, where I had Friends. Well, I made friends with my neighbors. Some of them were undocumented. Some of them didn't speak English very fluently, but I think it was a very rich experience. I feel that big city, diverse uh, culture, diverse experience, there's something inspiring about that. Intan's time in New York definitely influenced her work and especially her latest novel, The Wandering. Well, The Wandering was first released in Indonesian in 2017 
and then translated to English in 2020. The Wandering puts the reader at the heart of the adventure. It's a choose-your-own-travel format, so you are responsible for the journey that you have. You make the decisions, and ultimately, you determine the adventure. It's such a unique structure, and Intan told me that she had loved these types of stories when she was younger and had always wanted to turn this into an adult experience, which tied together all of her experiences and influences as an Indonesian woman. So I wanted to write about this experience of traveling and also the, this feeling of displacement, uh, questions around home and away, around belonging. I want to write about this in a, in a novel that, that allows you to think about the choices that you have made. And, and then I went back to the idea about you know, having a choose-your-own-adventure novel. So I thought the structure would allow the reader to think about their choices. Um, so what if I had chosen this way and not that way? Because that's what journeys are all about, right? And, and because that's what life is about in, in general, making choices. And your choices aren't always free, actually. Um, I mean, definitely what you can choose and what not, they are really structured by your class by your gender and, and where you come from so yeah I think it's it's fun playing around with this idea of you know choosing and and at the same time uh, you you think about the limitation of your choices now I usually avoid being held responsible for any decision I make if I can possibly help it but the idea of choosing an adventure within a world created in somebody else's imagination is so fascinating. Intan told me a little bit about the main character of The Wandering and who we become as we choose our adventure. You are a third world woman from Indonesia who hasn't had the chance to go around. And she just doesn't have the chance. She couldn't get scholarship and she doesn't have the money to, um, to live abroad. So she makes a deal with the devil and the devil gives her a pair of red shoes so that she can travel. And so at first it's, it's fun and it, it's playful and it seems like you can go anywhere, but actually she keeps encountering boundaries, barriers, even when she is in New York. Um, she can't participate fully in the city because she is like, you know, well, you need more than devil shoes. You need a connection, you need cultural capital, network to participate fully as a, a resident in, in a particular place. I guess the reason why she is an Indonesian woman, I, well, of course, because I'm Indonesian, I want to talk about my home and and what it means to travel and, and see other worlds as, as an Indonesian woman. But also, I think it's important to have a third world woman as a traveler, because I don't know, I think we we always hear or read stories about travelers who are male and white and yeah I guess we have so many of those so I just want to have a third world woman as, as the main character who travels and she might be naive she might want to for instance marry a white guy to change her life uh, but from those experiences she can reflect on 
the inequality of the world, for instance, where, where her uh, position is in the global world order, uh, what she can access and, and what her boundaries are. Yeah, so you are um, positioned as this third world woman. The Wandering sits in the travel genre, but it seems so different to some travel books that we know and the stories that we're familiar with. How many mainstream travel novels do you know that are positioned through the eyes of a third world woman? The chances are, like, not many. (laughs) And so I asked Intan if the travel genre has changed, and if so, what is it like now? I think now we have stories with women protagonists, but I think the um, the stories that are more visible are those that fit the neoliberal narrative. So you travel and you consume other cultures, like uh, through tourism, for instance, and you celebrate sort of your independence slash buying power um, when you travel. I guess this this narrative is still very strong, even though, well, it's in a way a bit better than back then when we, I, I think we only had male stories. But I think this needs to, to change because travel is a very political act. I mean, it has political implication. The, the traveler figure tells so much about the, the discrepancy of the world. I mean, if you travel as a Muslim woman uh, with a hijab, that would create a di- very different experience. Even though I'm, I'm a Muslim, um, my experience would be very different from other women who wear the hijab, for instance. Or if you travel with a Muslim na- name like Muhammad, it's very hard to, to pass borders with Muslim names without getting a, a certain unwanted treatment. I think we need to hear more about about these stories, stories that escape the the mainstream narrative or neoliberal frame, maybe stories about refugees, those kinds of stories. We need to hear more of those because there are different people traveling, not just the privileged ones. Because we're only hearing from that one-sided kind of privilege, white perspective, and mm-hmm. like you said, that consumption of other cultures, which mm-hmm. can be really harmful for stereotypes and, and how we see the world. Yeah. So for instance, Eat, Pray, Love. Well, it is, it is a, a, a story about feminist agency, right? Because she finds herself eventually and she can decide what she wants outside this idea of having someone and relationship and so on. But that agency becomes possible when it is contrasted to the agency of the uh, of other women. For instance, in India, there's this woman who has to enter an arranged marriage. And then in Indonesia, in Bali, this woman facing domestic violence. So there's always a contrast. And this contrast allows the protagonist to realize, oh, I am privileged and I, I have this agency to actually do what I want. But, but the problem is this agency is, is possible because of the stereotypes of our women in the third world. In Tan's works, not only weave third world women's experiences through the travel genre, 
but also stand firm in the horror genre too. Before The Wandering, Intan released a collection of short stories called Apple and Knife. This book was published in Indonesia in 2005 and then later picked up by Brow Books and translated to English in 2018. It's a collection of short stories that blends horror with folk tales and the focus all the time on monstrous and disobedient women. I wondered first, how did Intan come to blend fairy tales with horror? So most stories of Apple and Knife are familiar stories based on Indonesian folk tales or Western fairy tales. You have Cinderella and, and um, Snow White there in addition to Indonesian folk tales. So these are familiar stories, but I just want to tell these stories in a, in a different way, twisting a little bit or um, choosing a different point of view to pose a feminist question. And my interest is in the disobedient women and the monstrous women, because in Apple and Knife, there are women that you would consider grotesque or horrific. I guess that's because um, a lot of the women that I like in fairy tales, they're all scary women. Um, and I'm, I'm really curious about why they are scary or what kind of imagination mobilizes that horror, you know? So, uh, for instance, Snow White's Wicked Stepmother, there's a fear there, a, a fear about powerful women being mobilized. So, so it, it sort of feeds into your imagination of how scary women can be very threatening. And the same thing goes to characters in, in Indonesia as well. So I, I feel like there's always connection, even though there are Western fairy tales, there in, there's Indonesian folk tales, but there's this fear about powerful women. Um, for instance, the story of the Balinese uh, witch, Chalon Arang, and that, that's not really in that plan, but I keep thinking about it. And they're actually a, a rewriting of it by Indonesian feminist Tuti Herati. So this witch is really interesting because she is unhappy. She's a widow and no one wants to marry her daughter because she's just so scary. And, and it, it's really important. If you're a widow, means you are, which means you are alone and no one marries your daughter, like you are excluded from the society. And she's really, really angry. So she takes a revenge. She kills people in her village. Uh, and she is, because she's so powerful, Every, everyone is, uh, is really scared of her, the king, the priest, and they all cooperate to actually end uh, this witch's power. What's interesting is that this witch is, she is assisted by seven students. They're all female. So it's, it's really, wow. It's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting because it's like women collaborate to do something evil, but but here you have, there's this fear of women who collaborate with each other. And if women gather, they unite, they might do something evil. You know, they may, might plan something wicked. And I think that that's really relevant today. I mean, look, mm -hmm. just look at how, you know, people uh, are very suspicious of feminism and feminist collectives. The characters in Apple and Knife are villainous women. The blending of these really lovable folk and fairy stories that we know so well and that we've been brought up on 
with some pretty gross horror and then in Tan's own style on top of that. It's a really unique combination and it's not something that I've come across before but I was intrigued to know why these monstrous women were so interesting to Intan and if Intan could tell us a little bit about the first disobedient woman she knew. First, I noticed that my mother was really weird. That was the personal um, dimension. I had issues with my family and I was wondering why my mother was like a monster. I didn't recognize her. Well, because at that time, I had certain ideas of what a good mother should be. And my mother was, um, she acted weird a lot. And there were moments when she wasn't herself. I mean, looking at it now, my, my father was very oppressive back then. You could say that oh, she had no support when, when she had to deal with this patriarchal structure. She was all alone. But back then, I didn't understand that. So I started to study feminism, feminist theories, and then I started reading um, fiction as well. Um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, for instance. And I really identified with the monster, how the monster, I don't know, the marginalization of the monster, how, how the monster was created, not because he wanted to be the monster, but because of, of the circumstances. So that I started to see actually my mother that way. So there must be something that caused my mother to act weird or to act in a monstrous ways. So I started reading more. I became really interested in in the way feminist horror. I read Shirley Jackson and then uh, later Angela Carter, uh, Margaret Atwood. And I find that in, in these stories, women or the female monsters, they there are ways for the writers to actually question the system, what kind of system produces these monsters. So yeah, I guess that was the initial attraction to the monstrous women and the and the horror genre. To read more women in translation is a crucial exercise in understanding women's experiences and feminism on a global level. I think to understand an Indonesian woman's experience in the world, it's really helpful to know a bit about the women's movements in Indonesia and the history that has impacted women from that country. Context really is everything. And a little history goes a long way, especially when it's from the perspectives of the people being directly affected. And so I asked Intan if she could tell us a little more about some women's movements in Indonesia. We don't have a solid historiography of feminism because women's movement was completely erased uh, during the Suharto regime. So, so the Suharto regime it emerged in 1965 and it lasted for 32 years. And uh, basically it was an... Um, an erasure of women's movement, the communist women, they were sent to jail, they were raped, they were violated, um, some of them died. So it's it's really an erasure of women's movement and women's participation in politics. Women's roles as mothers and, and partners, 
they're all institutionalized. So in these institutions, women's roles were were acknowledged, but only as mothers and and wives. Um, It's like in a lot of military states. So women, they're not acknowledged for who they are, but as the wives of somebody. So yeah, it was apolitical for more than 30 years and, and women's or movement back then they had to be underground. It's not that there were no women's collectives or organization, but they had to be low key. And then after that, we had the political reform, the reformasi in 1998, Suharto stepped down and there was this celebration of freedom of expression. And we recognized uh, many women, women writers, women artists who talked about their bodies and sexuality in explicit ways and um, I guess this was inspiring for a lot of people because w- women's bodies are not considered as theirs before that. And so in 1998, with the reformazi, Indonesia saw a change to their feminist history and women were able to begin freely expressing gender, sexuality and questioning their roles in their communities. They had beat the Sohato regime that had been in place since 1968. Me, that's a long time. Taking inspiration from their foremothers before them, who had remained seriously vigilant throughout Dutch and Japanese colonisation. But now, despite Indonesia's long history of underground women's collectives, conservative critics who wish to keep women's roles defined as mothers and wives claim that feminism is a thing of the West and does not have roots in Indonesia. I asked Intan if she could tell us a little bit more about the relationship between the conservative groups in Indonesia with the feminist movement. After the the end of the Suharto regime, we had so many public articulations, including conservative Islam. Well, there are different kinds of Islam, including the more, the moderate ones, the liberal ones, and the leftist ones. But the mainstream ones are the the conservative. And interestingly, they are really supported by comfortable middle-class urban families. So, well, because, you know, it's, it's, it's all about the norms, it's all about morality and so on. So the, the conservative movement has grown bigger since the political reform in 98. What happens is that we always think that women will fight for feminist struggles. But in Indonesia, there are women, well, I guess it's, it's the same in, in different parts of the world. There are always you know, conservative women organizing themselves and then push for conservative issues. So in Indonesia, there's this group called the Love Family Alliance or or something. What they are doing is trying to push for policies and and laws, actually, that criminalize non-normative sexualities. And I think that's not surprising because in in many places you show you assert your power by trying to regulate sexuality. Sexuality becomes a battleground. I mean, it's the same thing as in, for instance, uh, in the 1930s. It was the Dutch colonial government trying to persecute homosexuals uh, because they want 
they wanted to assert their power as a colonial government by regulating sexuality. So I think this is not something unique. Um, so yeah, that's what has been going on. And there's this movement that campaigns to encourage women to stay at home and not pursue their aspiration, education, and so on. But you know, the, the feminists are there. They are trying to challenge the discourse in, in, in various ways. Conservative and liberal feminism in Indonesia and around the world now have the platforms to reach the masses. And I wondered if social media has had a role to play in popular feminism in Indonesia. And if so, how is it affecting young women who are learning about feminism for the first time? There's a, a little bit of disjuncture now, especially among the younger generation. They thought that, oh, feminists, they are what we can see on Twitter. They mm. are the, you know, the Taylor Swift kind of feminism, because we, we, have, we do have something like that in Indonesia, the celebrity feminism, um, where you think that that's the only expression of feminism. And that's quite hard because we don't have a solid historiography and, you know, women's groups in different parts of Indonesia, especially if you are in remote areas, they, they are not busy on Twitter. It's, it's a bit hard. Um, I mean, the, it's feminism in Indonesia is very diverse. There's Muslim feminism, there's Eastern Indonesia kind of feminism. But often what people see in the mainstream public is very limited. I, th I would say, you know, liberal feminists are the most visible ones. The idea that women from the same country share the same experience and struggles is one thing. But to think that women around the world are sharing the same limitations, share the same aspirations and experiences, is just not ever possible. And so again, reading women's works that have been translated is so important. It really comes back to the roots of this idea, which is decolonizing feminism. Decolonizing anything means taking a look at what we think we know, the literature we have, the references we use, and look again at the history books, turn them on their heads, and really understand that for a long time now, we've been looking at things through a white lens. Intan speaks a lot about decolonizing feminism. So I asked Intan if she could tell us a little more about this idea. This conversation emerged around 19, late 1980s, 1990s. The concern among academics, feminist academics and feminist activists were mainly about the problems of representation, the problems of speaking about, uh, speaking for the other in the production of feminist knowledge. So what happens if Western feminist scholars go to the third world and then talk about feminist experience there? Well, on the one hand, that can be great. You, you, you talk about the problems there and you introduce those problems to the wider public. But at the same time, the, the experiences of women in the third world are kind of colonized under the umbrella of feminism. So I guess decolonizing feminism really requires to think about feminist 
how how we remove our biases when we consider feminist issues. We need to be careful not to view them from a Western-centric perspective. And, and for me, I think the relation is more complex than just um, the West versus the rest. Although it's, it's definitely there, the, the problem of power is definitely there. But I think because I'm from the third world, right? And I, I, I know that my position is implicated in a larger power structure. And often I am in the position of the uh, someone that's not really having the power. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that I am completely powerless. There are different power structures. And in those different structures, my position keeps shifting. So I need to be really aware of my own biases. And probably as a third world woman, I am um, actually exercising power as well when I collaborate or when I talk about um, the people who or the women who have less uh, visibility or women with a limited platform. Intan speaks a lot about power and having various different power structures at play. I asked her what her own privilege looks like and how she fits amongst these different structures. I received invitations to speak in forums in different countries. I think that's one privilege that I need to acknowledge. And and usually I get questions around feminism in Indonesia. So it seems that I'm the the you know the feminist author from Indonesia. I'm I'm the spokesperson. I I really need to be cautious with with that kind of positioning because obviously I'm not the feminist author from Indonesia. <laughs> there are so many, um, and they their works are very fascinating. But I'm also aware that it's it's really it's really hard when you are really when you have that platform. Then the question is, what do you do with your privilege? What do you do with your platform? So the way I did it I'm not sure if, if this was right and I think I will I will need to um, think further about my my actions I will speak about you know various initiatives in Indonesia and also uh, various kinds of expressions including in literature in film how feminist um, writers and actors artists they are not you know this silent Asian women accepting mm-hmm. their fate they are really active in resisting the state construction of gender and sexuality, uh, resisting religious norms, patriarchal norms. Maybe it seems like, you know, just merely it's just name dropping, but I think there's something needs to be done uh, to say that, hey, I'm not exceptional. I'm just, I'm part of a larger network and you need to know my network. Wow. Being described as the feminist author from Indonesia is a huge title to carry. And I have to say, Intan always assures the person she's talking to that she is not the only feminist in Indonesia. There's a vast network of women writing about their experiences from their perspectives. Intan certainly is not the only one. We know that to decolonize feminism, we need to listen more read more. But I think to also decolonize feminism, we need to look at our relationship with capitalism and how we measure feminist success. 
In the West, we see more women in the boardrooms, more women CEOs, and more women making more money. But this wealth does not trickle down, which means that this type of measurement only benefits exceptional women and doesn't benefit the group as a whole. If we keep measuring our feminist success through economics, will we just create a further divide between rich women and poor women? I asked Intan if capitalism and feminism will ever have a seat at the table together. I think it's it's easy for us to be agents of capitalism and neoliberalism without us realizing it. I think, you know, when we start thinking of the individual expression of feminism, the one who is exceptional, the one who breaks the glass ceiling, that's when we maybe without realizing it, we are promoting values of capitalism. That You need to be competitive and exceptional. You are different. You are not like the others, right? Mm. And that's why capitalism loves competition among women. We need to be on top, but just being the, the exceptional one, not being part of the group. I think that's something we need to, to constantly challenge. Instead of fighting for one single spot for women, we need to expand the spaces to include more women. If, if it's just us being you know, successful, the CEO uh, being the ex- exceptional one, and we get that position, that's not feminism. That's not expanding the spaces. That's just us moving forward and being uh, an individual capitalist feminist. This hyper-competitive capitalist world was designed by men. Sorry for any of the guys that are listening out there, but it's true. And it's been used as a tool in colonisation. I mean, that's just a fact. So it shouldn't be too big of a shock to know that many feminists reject capitalism and they refuse to be measured by their economic value. Many believe that true feminism can't exist in a capitalist world because women are not designed to thrive, and especially women of colour or women from outside the Anglophone world. So how can they possibly measure their success fairly and justly in a world where they're designed to suffer? Intan tells me about one feminist theory that looks directly at this issue. Audre Lorde talks about the danger of reformism. And she says that you can't destroy the master's house by using the master's tools, right? And I guess white women who are exceptionally successful and, and because of that experience, they claim that we don't need feminism anymore. That That's an example of, you know, using the master's tool. So you sort of conform to the structures that elevate you, but the same structures marginalize other women. I think we should go beyond glass ceiling feminism. We should go beyond celebrating a few exceptional women and then look at the 99%, I guess. If we look at liberal feminism, perhaps the the answer is, yeah, we can still cooperate with capitalism, but I, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's, it's very difficult because capitalism is really based on the competition logic. It, so that's why it pits women against each other, right? And, but what we need to do is to 
find a stronger ground for collaboration between women. So it's not about exceptionalism. It's all about changing the whole system. That's why um, a lot of feminists who are into decolonizing feminism project argue that our feminism is a critique to capitalism. In the conversation around decolonizing feminism, you can't avoid the idea of feminism itself. Feminism was designed by white Western women to reflect white Western women's own agenda. Many Indigenous and Aboriginal women fighting for the rights of their Indigenous communities around the world do not identify as feminists. Islamic activists in Malaysia prefer the term womanist, and researchers in China use the term feminology to only describe the Western feminist theories. Many women around the world do not want to identify as feminists. Not because they do not care about women's rights or that they're not fighting for them on a daily basis, but they will not identify as something crafted by colonisers for colonisers. In many cases, they can't measure their success economically because capitalism and the metrics designed for the West to thrive have been designed to only reward the West. So, that poses another question. Have we outgrown the term feminist? Should we be looking to coin a new term in a world where we are post-feminism? These are debates and questions that some feminists are asking, and I asked Intan what she thinks. Have we outgrown feminism? That's our aspiration, right? I mean, we need to think beyond white feminism or non-Western feminism. We really need to think beyond that. But at the same time, I feel like there are several steps before we actually sort of let go of feminism or say goodbye to feminism. Because, I mean, until um, women in um, underrepresented regions, and I'm talking about the uh, the global south until we we hear their concerns their agency their resistance in the same way as uh, mainstream feminism in the west i think i'm just going to do what i can together with other people to provide more platforms for them to be heard I think a lot of people have talked about how feminism is really from the West and and those kinds of debates. But I think, okay, so women in non-Western countries, let's say in Indonesia, they have organized themselves since, let's say, 20th century. And they made political decisions. They made interventions in politics. And I think that is feminism. Maybe if I use the term womanism, that's going to be problematic as well. But I need a a term to say that this is how women organize and resist and and how they show their agency. I think at this stage, I'm just going to stick with the term feminism unless we can find a better term. And while we're on the topic of decolonization, you can't stop at feminism. That's really just scratching the surface. Take gender, for example, right? So in the West, for so long, it's just been thought, taught and practiced that there are only two genders, male and female, that's it. And even now, although gender and identity politics has come a long way, many still 
only recognise two genders and kind of brush off activists that are trying to tell them any different. European ideas towards gender have been spread across the world, along with religion, capitalism, white supremacy and feminism. Who are the good women? Who are the bad women? What do they look like? But the non-binary isn't a new phenomenon. It's been around and well-regarded in many Indigenous communities for thousands of years. Just because we're acknowledging different genders and the non-binary in the West now does not mean that we invented this. I asked Intan, while we're looking to decolonise our feminist knowledge, should we look at decolonising gender too? Decolonising gender means that you recognize that the ideas about gender that you know, that they are colonial constructions and they, and, and heteropatriarchy is a colonial construction uh, introduced by the West to uh, indigenous peoples to differentiate the civilized from the uncivilized. So the colonized men and women who do not fit into the idea of proper genders, proper men and women, they are not human beings. So so heteropatriarchy during the colonial time was a way to regulate the colonized subjects. So that's something we need to realize. We need to understand that, you know, the idea of proper men and proper women um, that has something to do with colonialism as well. So, for instance, in Indonesia, in Sulawesi, there are five different genders. And then, interestingly, because of the whole human rights discourse, activist discourse, looking at these different genders, now the Bisu community, one of the genders, they are sort of exposed and they are suddenly put into this LGBTIQ label, but they don't really fit there comfortably and they are under scrutiny and it's really dangerous for them because, you know, in Indonesia, there's this whole anti-LGBTIQ movement and suddenly the traditional gender, the, the Bisu gender, when it's placed in that category, it becomes a, a very vulnerable category. I had no idea about the five genders on the island of the Selawesi until I spoke with Intan. For so long, they had lived undisturbed, away from the public eye. And the Bisu is just one of the five genders in Selawesi. I found out that they are holy people within the community. The Bisu gender is described as intersex and is said to be born externally male, for example, and internally female. The people of the Selawesi Island believe that only something holy can be born male and female. And so this gender is regarded as spiritual and close to the gods. They act as priests in their community, and this was first recorded in the 1500s, long before Islam arrived in Indonesia, and it was recorded by travellers over 600 years ago. Academics, researchers and scholars have exposed the Bisu community and now they have faced ridicule and torment from the growing anti-LGBTI groups in Indonesia. The Bisu is only one of five genders on the island of Selawesi. 
I asked Intan if the different genders in the community are well known and if they have also been recorded. They are not highly exposed. They're still there. But because the, the Bisu is incorporated in performances like Galigo, like Western performances, Bob Wilson uh, from New York, he directed this performance involving Bisu. And then they started to get exposure in Indonesia and worldwide. And this exposure doesn't always mean good things because people started to come to the Bisu community uh, doing research, exposing, and then uh, putting labels on the bisu into the you know Western gender constructions, and Indonesians get mad because of it. So I guess this is just a story of how we need to be cautious of our research and what the knowledge is for, and how knowledge implicates others. So I guess that's part of the the idea of decolonizing knowledge. I mean. Indigenous scholar Linda Tohiwai Smith has talked about this, how for Indigenous people, research is is a really dirty word. It's about colonizing the knowledge. And who is that knowledge for? It's not for the Indigenous people, but for people outside. And researchers accumulate capital, if not financial, <laughs> symbolic capital. And there's nothing for the Indigenous community or the community being researched. There are only four people who are Bisu now. A gender that has been respected and highly regarded for over 600 years has almost been diminished in the last 60 years. Researchers, academics and scholars not familiar with local traditions or communities can get things horribly wrong. Research that serves a purpose for one group can leave long-term effects on those consuming that knowledge and the subjects of that knowledge too. We've seen this throughout history and one example can be explained with the term Orientalism. Edward Said was a Palestinian-American who developed a theory called Orientalism in 1978. So basically, he looked at history and knowledge, and I say knowledge in quotation marks, that had been produced by Europe or the West about the Middle East and some parts of Africa and Asia. These were the places known as the Orient and the history and knowledge that was produced by the West about the Orient was justification of colonial control. Said explained how colonization worked, not just through armies and conquered territories, but the study of human beings living in these places, the distribution of academic knowledge written by European scholars on the people of the Orient, which formed prejudice and biases, and through stories of barbarians and exotic women. Knowledge can be used to, to justify power upon the other. So knowledge is not innocent, because knowledge about the other, it's about the technology of oppression, of control. So yeah, back then, Europeans send writers, uh, photographers, people working in the bureaucracy to the Orient or the Middle East. And then they produce knowledge there, taking pictures and writing notes and so on. And this knowledge was used for people in, in Europe 
And it was used to to actually justify colonialism because, hey, look, you know how how backward people were and they sort of needed guidance, civilization. So knowledge could be really harmful in in that sense. This is still very much relevant today. Uh, the, The knowledge produced about particular culture can be used to to stigmatize that culture or to justify imbalanced power relation. So there's a discourse called neo-orientalism after 9-11 especially. Um, so it's it's orientalism, the same thing. It, it uses the same stereotype that the Orient is a place of barbarism, uh, a place that is not compatible with democracy and so on. And then neo-orientalism is framed with this whole idea about, you know, 9-11 and the backwardness of of Arab countries and the violence. They become sort of justification of the drones, the violence of uh, the United States in in these conflict uh, conflicting countries. So it's still going on. Um, I mean, it's not... You know, it's not merely stereotypes. That's what I always say to people about Orientalism. Isn't it always, like, you know, like merely stereotypes, like stereotypes that Australians are laid back. But stereotypes is sort of making it too light because they do have impact. Um, because there's this idea that Aboriginal people cannot govern themselves. Then it sort of justify violence and, and brutality and, yeah, um, injustice. The works that were circulated and were describing people within the Eastern world as uncivilized and needing of Western civilization were also responsible for the prejudice against the Oriental woman. I asked Intan what we know from these horribly inaccurate portrayals of women from the Orient at that time. People have been using this idea of Oriental woman in different analysis. But for Said, so he went back to the story of, you know, writer, French writer Gustave Laubert. So he met this courtesan in Egypt, Kuchuk Hanum. And that's actually one of my stories in Apple and Knife. And he wrote letters about this woman to um, his friends in Paris. And he actually said that, you know, you don't need to be worried about my affair with this woman, with this Oriental woman, because an Oriental woman is no more than a machine. You know, she's just a sex machine. It's just about, you know, the pleasure of the flesh for her. She's not a thinking being. Um, Yeah, actually, he wrote that. So, yeah, so this this idea that the, the Oriental woman is all about the flesh. She's not thinking and she is a sex object, basically. And depending on the context, if we, if we move it to, let's say, East Asia a little bit, uh, then we will have this idea of a submissive Hello Kitty type kind of woman. So knowledge was distributed in Europe to make direct comparisons to the people of the West and the East. The West being civilised, the East being uncivilised, the West being respectable and the Orient being full of sexually driven maniacs. The West being rational and the East being irrational, violent and dangerous. I think we majorly need a history in translation month, like 
freaking ASAP because this is not good, okay? Listeners to this episode, let's get on this and look to add some historical translated books into our personal libraries too. It's got to be done. Decolonizing your own knowledge starts with diversifying your reading lists. It's so rare to be a woman in translation. The total number of books being translated and circulated in the Anglophone world, which is the English-speaking world, and in publishing mostly refers to the US and the UK, is only 3%. So with 3% of the total translated works, women make an even smaller number of those writers. Also, a big chunk of those translated works are coming from Europe, Latin America, Japan and India. These places receive most of the attention when it comes to translation, which is still so valid and vital and we still need to be hearing stories from women from these countries, of course. But it just means that Intan being from Indonesia and a woman in translation adds another rarity onto her position. I asked Intan... What were the resources she needed to be translated? I don't know if it, if it's if it's good or sad, but in order to get published, you need one editor who can vouch for you. So in this case, I guess uh, we really depend on Brow Books discovering us and it really depends on the openness and the flexibility and the sense of adventure that an editor has because if an editor has you know certain rigid standards and values then a lot of women in translation won't even make it if the standards are very Europe- european for instance so we were very lucky mm-hmm. um to find and to be discovered by brow books and also my editor at Harville Secker, Ellie Steele. Actually, I guess she was the only one who who was interested in Apple and Knife and, and the Wandering because she is just a, a very cool, badass feminist, I guess. Um, yeah, but it, it really depends on these people. So that's why it's really important to, to do something about the structure. You need more feminists there. You need more people of color there. Otherwise... Um, it will be just the same boring male European standards. (laughs) Intan is fluent in English. She works as a professor at the Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, and all of her academic writing is in English. But I wondered what the experience would be like for writers who don't speak the language their works are being translated to. If the translators were biased, could translated works end up being peppered with racial and social biases like orientalism stereotypes. If these authors aren't supported by a conscious translation team, could things quite easily get lost in translation? Yeah, definitely. And also, maybe also when the writer speaks English, but, you know, because the, it's power relation as well. Um, the, the translator who doesn't, you know, take into account the writer's need might say, this is the best thing. This is the best way to translate it. And then the writer said, well, okay. Um, but it's, that's not really happening. I mean, I'm not an expert in translation, but I've heard this story about this Indonesian writer so she uses the word dia which means he and she 
in Indonesian language. So we don't differentiate gender. And she says, I wanted to use they, but the, because she said it's important not to specify the gender. But the, the um, translator said, they is awkward. It has to be he or she. And, and you know, because translator translation is about authority. And she, she's probably, she was probably tired of arguing. So they used um, he or, or was it she? I, I forgot. But it was very different because it, uh, the, the context, it, has, it was supposed to be they. But, you know, this is the, the sort of thing about translation, how um, it's related to power. It's related to ideas about the other. So it, it can be a space where Orientalism is enacted as well. In this episode, we've spoken a lot about the lens that we are taught to see the world from. History written by unqualified people or just maybe just by the ignorance of the time has influenced the way that we see things. And I think it's definitely something that we can actively unteach ourselves. Thinking about stories without borders is a really powerful way of re-educating ourselves. But in a wider conversation with actions that speak louder than words, I wondered what the first steps were to changing up the feminist knowledge that we think we know. I think one important keyword is collaboration. Well, this is important and at the same time tricky because collaboration is never equal. There's always, again, power relation involved. It's very hard for collaboration to be uh, completely equal. But collaboration allows women from more privileged background, women from urban spaces to collaborate with women from underrepresented areas. And then from that collaboration, hopefully we can provide more platforms for those who are not highly visible or who are not heard a lot in, in, the, in the mainstream sphere. But the, again, as I said, this is very tricky because one can co-opt the other, the, the more privileged feminists will co-opt the other. And that's why this is where decolonizing framework comes in you need to to be aware of your power because your power implicates the other person you are collaborating with but without collaboration without contacts and connection i think it it will be hard for us to actually move on and and to actually challenge and intervene we need to create more feminist spaces where we work together in the last few months with the Black Lives Matter movement, people have been seeking out knowledge like never before. Finally, works that should have been household names are getting the spotlight, and that's great. But we don't want this to be just a moment in time. We want this to be a movement that lasts. We want to recognise when things aren't working, when racism exists, and when history needs to be confronted head on. And so reading works in translation is an essential place to start. The 3% of translated and circulated works will hopefully rapidly increase as we, the consumers, are demanding a more comprehensive and diverse range of literature. With knowledge at our fingertips and our own curated news feed, we're looking to escape our little bubbles 
and publishing houses have the power to do that, I think it's crystal clear to publishers that commissioning literary works outside of the English language, stories outside of our virtual bubbles and works written by people of colour are crucial in protecting the longevity of books and publishing houses. I hope more publishers will commission women across borders so we can discover stories written from their perspectives and get to know feminism outside of our own language group. I mean, you can't can't be happy about decolonizing your knowledge if you are just, you know, reading more diverse work. That's just the beginning of it. If you don't think about how you interact with others, with other human beings, or how you collaborate with others, and thinking about um, your position within power structure and how that implicates uh, your interaction, I think it's still a long way to go. If you haven't read any translated works yet, it's fine. This month is your month to give it a go. Check out today's episode notes. You can find the names of some of the badass authors that Intan loves to read and recommends. Some of them are translated and some of them aren't, but all equally fucking awesome. So what the hell are you waiting for? If you do read any women in translation this month or any month, because women deserve more than one month, y'all, Give us a shout out on social media as we would love to see the books that you're reading. You've been listening to Shut Up, She's Talking and that was in Tan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>